October 1, 1893, was a typical Sunday for the people of Chenier Caminata, a small fishing outpost off the southern coast of Louisiana. Just before sunset, a group of friends and neighbors gathered at the home of André Guilbeau for their usual Sunday banquet. The meal was filled with laughter and stories, with André at the head of the table. André was quiet and level-headed, a devoted father and husband. He was well-liked in the small community of fishermen. When he spoke, people took him seriously. The chatter abruptly grew quiet as André rose from his seat. He looked contemplative as he raised a glass of wine to make a toast. As if on command, a startling wind blew through the open windows, extinguishing the candles on the table. The first drops of rain pattered against the roof. As the gusts of wind howled, André calmly announced, This will be the last time we will be together. For tonight, I will drown. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first of two episodes on the Chenier Caminata Hurricane of 1893, one of the deadliest natural disasters in American history. The storm tore over the Louisiana coast and hurtled inland, leaving thousands of people dead in its wake. This week, we'll follow the storm as it develops on its path toward the Yucatan Peninsula and gathers strength in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll also meet the people of Chenier Caminata, whose seafaring lifestyle put them right in the path of the vicious hurricane. Next week, we'll witness the devastation the hurricane wrought in southern Louisiana. We'll follow the people of Chenier Caminata as they rush to save their neighbors during and after the storm and the permanent scars the hurricane left on the region. The coastal islands of Chenier Caminata and Grand Isle separate Louisiana's Barataria Bay from the Gulf of Mexico. Chenier Caminata was once a peninsula connected to the Louisiana shore, although a thin land bridge connecting it was usually under a foot or two of seawater. The Chenier, a Louisiana French term for Oak Ridge, was originally populated with groves of oak trees. These were cut down in the late 18th century to build the first camps and fishing huts of the village. However, clearing the trees left the area more exposed to high tides and wind from storms blowing in off the Gulf. The settlement was just a few feet above sea level and was less than a mile long. Storm surges and abnormally high tides often brought water right up to the villagers' doorsteps. But the risks didn't stop the settlement from growing quickly. The warm Gulf waters supplied plenty of seafood that made for a profitable living, and the diverse population quickly rose to over 1,500 fishermen, merchants, and lots of children. By 1893, the community was the largest supplier of fresh oysters and shrimp to the markets in New Orleans. 55 miles inland. The community of Chenier Caminata was thriving, 
and the excellent fishing and oystering encouraged the residents to overlook the occasional storm damage. They even grew accustomed to storms. The villagers learned to anticipate tidal surge or the abnormal rise in local sea level during a storm. This surge is primarily caused by high winds pushing water on shore. The size of the surge is dependent on the orientation of the coastline with the storm track, as well as the size, intensity, and speed of the storm. The bigger the storm, the more water it will blow forward onto shore. Throughout the 19th century, the residents of Chenier Caminata witnessed almost a dozen significant hurricanes, but none of them had actually made landfall over the island. The devastation of a direct hit was unknown to the village until October of 1893. The weather system that devastated Chenier Caminata first appeared on September 27th, moving northwest through the Caribbean toward Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. A trough of low-pressure air created a tunnel of wind that swirled up into the atmosphere. This huge tube of wind drew moisture into its rotation, blossoming into a cyclone of clouds spinning around the tunnel, forming every sailor's worst nightmare, a hurricane. Tropical cyclones are considered hurricanes once their sustained wind speeds reach 74 miles per hour. However, that's the speed of the spinning winds inside the cyclone. The speed of their actual forward movement across the sea is much slower, between 10 and 30 miles per hour. This slow ground speed means the destruction can cover a wide area over multiple days. Some hurricanes are even slower than walking speed. It feels like the storm is simply hovering in place, chewing up the land and sea below. On September 29, 1893, the edge of the Chenier Caminata hurricane clipped Cozumel and Cancun. But this brush with land did little to weaken the storm. The cyclone was miles wide and still mostly over the warm waters of the Gulf. The average water temperature in the Gulf of Mexico is 80 degrees or warmer in the summer and fall months. This means that the water vapor rising in the atmosphere cools and condenses, with the water droplets forming large, anvil-shaped clouds known as cumulonimbus clouds. These dark clouds are often a sign of imminent downpours because of the moisture they carry and their low altitude. The evaporation of warm water fuels the storm, so the longer it stays out at sea, the larger and stronger the hurricane becomes. On the morning of October 1st, a cold front hovered over the anchored boats along Louisiana's coast, still far northeast of the hurricane. Fishermen raised their sails to head out into the Gulf, feeling a slight wind that raised little alarm. It was simply another cool autumn day for fishing. However, as the cold front moved out to sea, it redirected the growing hurricane. Instead of heading west for Mexico, the combination of the cold front and the trough of low-pressure air pushed the storm the other direction, toward the Louisiana coast. The rivers and lakes surrounding New Orleans were a vast network of waterways that accommodated hundreds of sailing vessels each day. One of these was the double-masted schooner Alice McGuigan. Her crew was loading 35,000 square feet of lumber for transport to New Orleans' west end. Their route would take them from the mouth of the Pearl River into Lake Bourne, east of the city. From there, they would follow the narrow strait into Lake Pontchartrain and their final port in New Orleans. 
The Alice McGuigan made slow progress in the light morning breeze as it moved west on Lake Bourne. The crew were mostly young and inexperienced, but they had a strong leader in Captain William Delevier. Captain Delevier took the time to train his new charges on the proper ways to raise the sails and harness the wind. Off the Gulf Coast, 50 miles to the southwest, the crew of the 100-foot wooden steamship SS Joe Weber pulled into the wharf at Grand Isle. The steamer was operating with a skeleton crew that day. The ship was normally a tourist transport, and October was the start of the slow season. Despite the clouds forming on the horizon, the six-member crew was looking forward to a quiet Sunday. A few miles to the west, in Chenier Caminata, Father Ferdinand Grimaud was finishing up Sunday Mass at the recently built church. As the congregation dispersed, he felt the wind pick up from the southeast. He looked out on the gulf, searching for any hint of a storm. He could faintly see a dark line on the horizon. He silently prayed that the clouds would stay out at sea. But now, less than 200 nautical miles away, the massive hurricane was moving steadily north through the gulf. It was picking up speed and expanding, spreading huge dark clouds toward the coast. By late afternoon, the Alice McGuigan and her cargo were entering the Rigolese, a deep water strait east of New Orleans that connects Lake Bourne and Lake Pontchartrain. But the crew found themselves drifting back toward Lake Bourne as the weather worsened. The first gusts from the approaching storm were reaching land. Captain Delavier shouted to his inexperienced crew to drop the sails and run a lifeline across the deck in case the ship capsized. The wind and tide were already rising, making navigation difficult and dangerous. If the winds brought on a storm surge, they could be trapped in the narrow strait and dashed to pieces. By 3 p.m., the residents of Chenier Caminata knew something was wrong. Huge flocks of seagulls, pelicans, and other seabirds were heading inland to seek shelter. Cattle grazing in the marshes lumbered toward higher ground. The animals' instincts were a warning sign that the darkness gathering offshore was about to become something much, much worse. Coming up, we'll explore how the location of Chenier Caminata's isolated fishing community made it a prime target for tragedy. Now back to the story. In 1893, the residents of Chenier Caminata were a mix of ethnicities, all united by their love for the sea. Father Ferdinand Grimaud recognized the devout Catholic community as having a joie de vivre, a zest for life. But this enthusiasm was at odds with the constant threat of deadly coastal storms. The low elevation makes the area susceptible to massive flooding during storm surges, which can produce increased water levels more than 15 feet above normal. And there was little that could be done to keep them out. Much of the nearby city of New Orleans is around six feet below sea level, and it requires a ring of levees to keep out the tides. As a side effect, this ring creates a shallow depression that traps floodwaters inside. It's as though the entire city is resting on a leaky sponge and hemmed in by brick walls. And to make matters worse, much of the area is sinking. Some areas of New Orleans are sinking nearly two inches per year, the result of rising sea levels and a drainage system that destabilized the ground sediment. This means that as time progresses, 
the levees need to be a little higher to protect the city. According to a National Weather Service report, back in 1718, the levee system was only three feet high. Today, the levees are 17 feet high. Hurricane damage was a part of the region's history ever since its earliest settlers. Reports of hurricane-like storms in the region date back to the 1500s. This was the era of Spanish conquistadors who traveled to the New World in search of territory and riches. They were some of the first to record the effects of the cyclones in the Gulf of Mexico. In October 1527, explorer Panfilo de Narvaez took his ships west along the Gulf Coast from modern-day Florida toward the mouth of the Mississippi River. En route, his fleet was caught up in a powerful storm that tossed them around like driftwood. Only a handful survived to tell the tale. Spanish and French explorers continued to scout the area over the next century. In 1682, French explorer René Robert Cavalier, Sir de la Salle, traveled down the Mississippi River to the Gulf, mapping and exploring the river basin. He named the territory Louisiana in honor of the French king, Louis XIV. In the coming decades, the area would become the city of New Orleans. New Orleans quickly became the center of the booming French colony. Its location on the bluffs above the mouth of the Mississippi made it a vital hub for trade and commerce. But its proximity to the coast and a lack of natural buffers like islands and cliffs also made it a target for tropical storms. The young city was destined to face natural disasters from its earliest days. The first well-documented storm to strike the city was the Great Hurricane of 1722. Multiple first-hand accounts described an overnight cyclone that decimated New Orleans' fragile infrastructure. The storm made landfall around 10 p.m. on September 22, 1722. Storm surges of up to 8 feet and hurricane-strength winds lasted almost 15 hours. Many of the hastily erected buildings in the city toppled. An early New Orleans church and the area's lone hospital were completely destroyed. The three-foot-high levees did little to protect the city from tidal overflow, and brackish water overran the city streets. There was also extensive damage to the port and the vessels docked there. At least 10 ships sank as a result of the storm surge. Eyewitnesses reported that 36 buildings along the wharf were wiped out. Despite the lack of a natural levee and the inherent vulnerability of the low-lying region, New Orleans continued to prosper and expand. In 1763, Spain took control of the city after signing the Treaty of Paris. The Spanish government encouraged colonization of the territory, which meant expanding land grants into lower areas that were more susceptible to storm surges and flooding. Among the first new areas to be developed was Grand Isle. Resting on a foundation of rock and shell deposits, the barrier island is protected from the gulf by low sand hills that act as a breakwater against rising tides. This narrow strip of land, about 54 miles south of New Orleans, was split into four land grants. The original property owners developed their plots into plantations for sugarcane and cotton while harvesting shrimp and oysters in the nearby waters. To the west, the area that became Chenier Caminata was separated from Grand Isle by a narrow waterway known as the Spit. It earned that nickname when people claimed the two shores were close enough to spit across. 
Unlike the rock beneath Grand Isle, the foundation of Chenier Caminata was sand. These barrier islands often face the brunt of storms making landfall, acting as a first line of defense by absorbing a storm's energy and protecting the mainland from rising tides. The original oak groves planted on Chenier Caminata and Grand Isle provided additional protection from oncoming storms. But in a terrible twist of human folly, most of the oak trees were cut down to make way for the growing population. The loss of the trees put those new residents at greater risk. On average, a disastrous hurricane made landfall almost every three years in the century after Chenier Caminata was settled. The residents were constantly forced to rebuild after these tropical storms. This part of the Gulf Coast was particularly exposed to deadly storm surges because of the sharp angle the Mississippi Delta forms with the rest of the shore. This 90-degree corner in the coastline amplifies tidal surges as they're pushed inland. The Delta acts like a sideways funnel, sending water levels higher and making the rising tide difficult to contain. Lake Bourne and Lake Pontchartrain are heavily impacted by these surges, piling up water against their shores and flooding inland. As a result, barrier islands like Chenier Caminata and Grand Isle served as vital buffers to slow a cyclone's energy. Once over land, a hurricane no longer draws strength from the warm water. But these coastal islands were still very isolated from the mainland and often only accessible by boat. This meant they had no evacuation routes to escape during a storm. Those caught in a hurricane could only shelter in place and ride it out. However, the frequency of hurricanes also made the area a valuable location for early meteorological observations. Explorers like William Dunbar first identified the common characteristics of hurricanes by living through some of the worst ones of the 18th century. Dunbar was present during a powerful storm that ravaged New Orleans in August 1779. The hurricane struck overnight, decimating houses and boats. Dunbar noted that the storm's forward movement revolved around a central vortex of relative calm, what came to be known as the eye of the hurricane. In an article later published in the American Philosophical Society, Dunbar described the moment of calm as such. The wind was arrested for a short time, for in five or six minutes, perhaps less, the hurricane began to blow from the opposite point of the compass and very speedily regained a degree of fury and impetuosity equal, if not superior, to what it had before possessed. One year later, on August 24, 1780, Dunbar was trapped in New Orleans during an even stronger hurricane. With wind gusts between 160 and 180 miles per hour, Dunbar recounted seeing tornadoes spin off from the storm cell and wreak even more havoc. This is a common phenomenon as hurricanes make landfall. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reports nearly all tropical cyclones produce at least one tornado. While Dunbar helped to establish the defining characteristics of these Gulf storms, such observations did little to stop the devastation the region experienced every year. Communities continued to sprout up around New Orleans, drawn by economic prospects and the westward expansion of the United States. New Orleans remained an important outpost during America's 19th century expansion. Because of this, immigrants from all over the colonies settled in the region. 
French Acadians moved south from Bayou Lafourche to Chenier Caminata to improve their economic prospects, bringing Cajun culture with them. They were joined by Creoles from New Orleans, Italian immigrants, displaced Germans, and fishermen from as far away as China and the Philippines. Despite their diverse backgrounds, they shared a common religion. By 1889, the Catholic residents of Chenier Caminata had built a new church. Notre Dame de Lourdes drew worshipers from the surrounding areas, including vacationers staying at the nearby resorts on Grand Isle. The church had a bell specially forged from silver that could be heard far and wide. A few years later, on the first Sunday of October 1893, the bell at Notre Dame de Lourdes rang for the last time, not to call for worship, but as a warning. But it came too late. The frantic bell toll couldn't stop the oncoming storm, and the villagers no longer had time to flee. The residents of Chenier Caminata hunkered down and prayed the hurricane would pass them over like so many others had before. But as the howling wind blew at their doors, it was clear this storm was different. This hurricane was coming right for them. Coming up, the seafaring residents of coastal Louisiana face one of the most destructive hurricanes in American history. Now back to the story. On the morning of October 1st, 1893, a cold front pushing into the Gulf of Mexico collided with the hurricane already churning over the warm sea. This confluence set the strengthening hurricane on a trajectory to the northeast, heading straight for Louisiana and the vulnerable coastal community of Chenier Caminata. However, the hurricane was making slow progress across the Gulf. The storm's track between September 29th and October 1st had taken it roughly 500 nautical miles, providing an estimated forward speed between 15 and 20 miles per hour. The hurricane's forward momentum stalled even further when it plowed into the cold front sweeping down from the coast. While it's difficult to identify where exactly the collision occurred, it was far enough offshore that the fishermen and oystermen of Chenier Caminata were caught off guard when the storm arrived. The residents of Chenier Caminata were usually in sync with the Gulf waters that provided their source of food and income. But the cold front concealed the true extent of the hurricane bearing down on them. The storm's slow forward progress meant it continued to build up energy before its destructive landfall. As Sunday Mass let out at Notre Dame de Lourdes, a rising offshore wind was making the parishioners nervous. Fisherman André Guilbeault exchanged brief words with Father Ferdinand Grimaud about the changing tides and speculated on the path of the storm. Father Ferdinand noted how small the difference between safety and destruction could be, depending on the storm's path. He urged André to take precautions. The storm could hit them directly or miss them completely. But there was no way to tell until it arrived. It was better to be prepared. But the last few hurricane seasons had been relatively gentle, which gave the residents a false sense of readiness. There was a whole generation living in Chenier Caminata who were yet to experience the direct hit of a major hurricane. But André Guilbeault couldn't shake a feeling of dread as he prepared to host his neighbors for dinner that night. He secured his boat and reinforced his home as best he could. He found himself staring at the waves, 
trying to glean any information on where the storm was headed. It was clear the storm growing on the horizon would be massive. On average, hurricanes are about 300 miles wide. This one was likely much larger. The first effects of the storm were being felt across 500 miles of coastline, from Timbalier Bay, Louisiana, to Pensacola, Florida. A few miles to the east of the Chenier Caminata, the crew of the steamship Joe Weber was using chains to reinforce their ties to the wharf at Grand Isle. Up on deck, Captain McSweeney and his first mate discussed the darkening horizon. Some had wagered the storm would miss them entirely, saying it appeared to be headed further west. Even so, the captain ordered his men to prepare for the worst. In the narrow Wrigley's Channel, Captain Delavier found his cargo ship, Alice McGuigan, losing ground in the shifting winds. Fearful of the dark clouds building in the southern sky, the captain had his inexperienced crew find a stretch of coastline facing the wind, known as a lee shore. Delavier intended to anchor nearby and ride out the storm. His hope was that the weight of their cargo would weigh them down and stabilize the schooner against the waves. But the move also brought the risk of driving the ship onto the shore. Usually when caught up in a storm at sea, a ship would stay clear of dangerous coastlines and face the waves head on. If close to a port, that port would ideally provide shelter from the winds. However, the Alice McGuigan was caught between two lakes that were very susceptible to storm surges. Given the narrow location of the Wrigley's Channel and untrained crew, Captain Delavier concluded anchoring was their safest bet. Unfortunately, they were fighting the wind and running out of time to find safety. Huge, frothing waves crashed into the shoreline of southern Louisiana, rising higher and creeping inland toward Chenier Caminata and Grand Isle. The wind squalls on the edges of the hurricane intensified to gusts over 100 miles per hour. Supper ended at the Gilbo residence under an ominous dusk. Already rattled by Andre's strange premonition that many of them wouldn't survive through the night, attendees retreated to their homes against a frenzied wind and rising current. They scrambled to board up windows and doors. The storm was inching closer to the coast, and its effects were being felt far and wide. A ship off the coast of Pascagoula, Mississippi, over 100 nautical miles to the northeast of Chenier Caminata, measured an atmospheric pressure of 28.65 inches of mercury, indicating a Category 2 hurricane. This categorical measurement is used in the Saffir-Simpson scale that classifies hurricanes based on their intensity. But the ship off Mississippi wasn't near the center of the storm. Chenier Caminata was ground zero. The atmospheric pressure at Chenier Caminata and Grand Isle was likely much lower, implying the hurricane was actually a Category 3 or higher. Over at the newly built church, Father Ferdinand retreated to the upper story of the parish around 7 p.m. He was overcome with a sense of dread as he watched fishermen drag their boats across the beach in a mad dash to secure them to their homes. Father Ferdinand saw the wave swell to over six feet and crash into the beach, licking at the nearest huts. He prayed his congregation's lives would be spared. Only God could protect them now. Minute by minute, it seemed to get worse. 
The church bell swayed in the gusts, but the ringing was barely audible over the chaotic winds and heavy rain. Whipping squalls lashed against the fragile supports of homes. One eyewitness described the towering waves as beating against the frail huts like hammers of destruction. Andre Gilbo tried to calm his children, who were terrified by the rushing wind and rising waves. Their fragile home did little to keep out the wind and rain. The family held each other close and prayed. In the Rigolese, Captain Delavier and his crew aboard the Alice McGuigan were forced to anchor sooner than he'd hoped. Powerful eastern winds were already pushing the tides higher onto land. The ship was at the mercy of the waves, tossed around like a rag doll, and the worst was yet to come. At Grand Isle, frothing waves crashed into the Joe Weber, testing the lines securing it to the wharf. The clanking chains stretched to their limits. The onslaught of each wave was pulling the vessel out to sea. Captain McSweeney ordered the boiler be stoked. He had to relieve the pressure on the lines before they were ripped apart. In order to combat the forces pulling them out to sea, Captain McSweeney ran the boat at full steam into the wind. It was a desperate attempt to keep their ship moored to land rather than risk being dragged out into the choppy ocean current. As the church bell furiously clanged in the steeple above him, Father Ferdinand stood at an open window in the rectory. He could hear the cries of his parishioners carried on the rushing wind. Over fitful gusts that shook the walls, Father Ferdinand managed to light a lantern and place it in the window. He hoped it served as a beacon for those caught up in the storm. Then the priest closed his eyes and prayed for absolution. Father Ferdinand was suddenly thrown to the ground. Half of the church roof above him tore away, flying into the black vortex. One of the deadliest hurricanes in American history had just made landfall. The terrible storm hurled its fury against the tiny village of Chenier Caminata under the cover of darkness. Many of the villagers would never see daylight again. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll follow the storm as it charges into the Louisiana coast. We'll see how the residents of Chenier Caminata fought for their lives over the course of a terrifying night. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Greg Cohen, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard.